seated. And if you have your Bibles, please turn them with me to Acts chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, just slip up a hand and we will get one over to you. Acts chapter 16, and we are going to start uh, at verse 16, read all the way through the end of the chapter. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. 
And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, the uh, gospel in a nutshell was preached by Paul and Silas here. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for everyone in this room who has found that hope. And Lord, I pray for those who have not yet found it, that today they would bend the knee and that they would confess you as Lord and Savior, surrender their life to you, and know the salvation that is available through you. God, I pray that you would help us to be like Paul and like Silas, who even when things are not going well, even during times of pain and difficulty and trial and tribulation, yet they praise God. Help us to praise you in the midst of our storms today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. Good morning. Um, thank you, Mark, again, for just leading us in a tremendous time of worship. And Pam and, of course, John and Sonia have already left. Let me just say a word real quick. If you're wondering why John and Sonia leave every morning, it's not because they really just can't stand my preaching. They might not be able to stand my preaching, but the reason they leave... They're, they're actually not members of our church. They're members at Anchor Church, and they just come to help us out on uh, Sunday mornings. And they're part of, the, of Anchor's praise team. And they only have a very small window of time to get back to Anchor to get there to, to practice with them and get ready for that worship service. So they come here. They make a sacrifice. They, they sacrifice their Sunday morning time before their regular church service to spend it here with us, helping lead us in worship. So I want you guys, next time you see John and Sonia Schaefer, to just thank them for the sacrifice they're making on behalf of Harbins to help us on Sunday mornings. So, uh, but, yeah, thank you for, for your leadership, Mark, in our music area as well. Now, for the kids this morning, I've got, um, like I usually try to do, a, an illustration. And I don't have a good place to keep my illustrations, so I put them back there. Um, how many kids in here like balloons, right? You like balloons? Great. Okay. Um, so let's see here. Someone hold this balloon for me. Um, Kaylee, you want to hold the balloon for me? Come on. All right. So, you like balloons. Now, I like balloons too, but for a long time, hold on to that, I was scared of balloons. Why? Because, and it's still vivid in my mind right now. I have no idea how old I was, but I remember as a little kid chasing a balloon out into the yard, and y'all have had this happen. It goes out in the yard, and it lands on the grass. You're right about to pick it up, and it just hits that glass, grass blade that's just strong enough to What? Pop it, okay? So I want you to, to pop this balloon. You mean to pop it in your hands? Do you mind if I do that? What will happen if I stick this needle through this balloon? It'll pop. You want to you do it for me? All right, go for it. Oh, it didn't pop. Wouldn't you know it? All right, there we go. Man. Some days, Kaylee illustrations just don't quite go the way they're supposed to go. All right, that was supposed to pop and make a loud noise and startle everybody, and it didn't. All right, stay right there, though, because I have another balloon up here. All right. All right. I just had a conversation last night that I'm struggling to come up with illustrations for the kids these days. Wouldn't you know it? 
God gave me one this morning, and it's not working. All right. Now, so I've got another balloon here, and we're going to stick a needle through it as well. Okay, and let's see what happens with this balloon, okay? All right. Now hold that up for everybody to see. That balloon didn't pop. It didn't pop, did it? No. But the needle's right there stuck in it. Now you can tell, you can see it because you're right up here close. Why did that needle, I mean that needle, the needle didn't pop. Why did that balloon not pop this morning? Why didn't it pop? Can you tell everybody why that one didn't pop? Because there's a piece of tape on it, isn't there? There's this, there's this piece of tape right here. And you can try this at home. You put a piece of tape on a balloon and you stick the needle in and it, and it doesn't pop. Now, it really would have been funny had it popped with the tape on there. It really would have thrown my, my illustration totally upside down. And I would have had to try to find some other way to apply it. But anyway, but, you know, it's not popping because it has the tape on it. And what I want us to see today, and you can have a seat now, Kaylee. Uh, what I want us to see in today's passage, kids... Just to kind of to boil it down into just something really simple for you guys before we get into the text this morning, is that this needle kind of represents the circumstances of life that aren't very easy, that are painful. And a lot of things happen in our lives that are painful sometimes. Uh, sometimes it can be things that just happen, circumstances. Other times it may be something someone has done to us. Other times it may be a result of our own sin that's causing pain in our life. But pain comes into our life. And in the story today that Dima read, Paul and Silas come into a situation where they experience some tremendous suffering. And what keeps them going through the suffering, the tape on their balloon, if you will, is the Holy Spirit's presence in their heart and the joy that God gives them that enables them to overcome the suffering. You see... God's Spirit in us and the joy He gives us and the peace He gives us doesn't eliminate suffering from the life of a believer. It doesn't make a beating hurt less. It doesn't make tears keep from rolling out of your eyes when someone has insulted you. It doesn't, doesn't get rid of those things. It enables you to overcome those things and to, to be able to live in the midst of those things with a joy that becomes a means of witnessing to the world. So we're going to look at that this morning here in a second. But first, we need to walk through this passage. And for whatever reason, the video screens are real dark today. But luckily, there's only a couple of points in your notes today. So there's not, you don't have to follow along on the screen very much. But I am going to bring up the map of the missionary journey, just to sort of recap where we're at. We're going through the book of Acts verse by verse. Um, how long have we been at it now? A year and a half going through Acts. So um, it's, it's taken us a while, but that's good. Let's, let's look at how this, the first church uh, started um, and, and how the missionary, um, the, the teachings of Jesus exploded onto the scene through the disciples. And, um, and so we're, we're looking at the second missionary journey that Paul has taken now. He, the first missionary journey with he and Barnabas was a tremendous success. They, they planted churches all throughout um, right there, that, the area that says Cilicia and Lycia and Galatia. And they planted churches all throughout that area. And they had had a, a great first missionary journey. Lots of people came to Christ. Lots of churches were planted. It doesn't mean it, was, it wasn't without difficulty. You remember in Lystra, Paul got stoned. They thought he was dead. But they, after the journey, they come back to their home church of Antioch, which Antioch is right there. That's their home church of Antioch. And they celebrate what God's done. But it's not without some controversy because the Jews in Jerusalem are wanting the Gentiles who've now come to the faith to become 
Jews. In other words, to begin to practice um, um, Jewish ceremonial law and, and um, uh, dietary law and these things. And so they go to Jerusalem, meet with the church in Jerusalem with all the apostles and the elders. And they make a decision that no, we're saved by grace alone. That's what Paul's been teaching. That's what Jesus taught. And therefore, we do not have to impose Jewish law on the Gentiles. And so they celebrate that. They go back to Antioch. Everyone's excited about this news and how the Gentiles have been accepted and how God's opened up a door to the Gentiles. And Paul decides, hey, let's go on another missionary journey. Let's, let's go back through this area here and let's encourage and strengthen the churches. And Barnabas says, great, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no. And the, the disagreement becomes such, as you remember, that they part ways. Barnabas and John Mark head to Cyprus. And Paul takes Silas with him, which is uh, one of the envoys from the church in Jerusalem who came up to share the good news that, that, um, that the Jews were accepting the Gentiles and not expecting them to abide by the law. And so um, Silas, who's there in Antioch, joins Paul's team. They head back. They go in reverse direction this time. Head back and strengthen these churches right here. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia. And if you remember last week, from that point forward, though, things begin to get a little bit more difficult. Because they begin to head into Asia. There's no little dots here, like these little dots, but there's lots of towns and cities in here. But the Holy Spirit prevents them from being able to go into Asia. So they take a northward turn to try to go into this area up here, Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit prevents them from going into Bithynia as well. And so they head westward and end up in Troas, 400 miles of fruitlessness, 400 miles of traveling through Asia or the, the, the border area really between Asia and Bithynia with no fruit, closed doors all the way. Matter of fact, when they got to Troas and they're facing the sea, I'm imagining what they were thinking, well, let's just turn around. It's time to turn around and, and go back home. But as we read last week, God sends a vision to Paul in the night a man from Macedonia, which is over here, imploring Paul to come over and help them. And the team gets together the next day, and immediately they head that way. They conclude, they talk about it, and they conclude that, yes, we are to go to Macedonia. We are to cross the Aegean Sea. And the gospel, for the very first time, crosses over into the continent of Europe. This is Europe. It crosses into the continent of Europe. And when they get there, they go to Philippi. And they get to Philippi, and there's no um, synagogue in Philippi. There's no place to carry out the missionary endeavor in the same strategic way that they've been doing it up to this point, which is to go to the synagogues first. There's no synagogue there. And so when there was no synagogue, which meant there weren't very many Jewish men in the city, when there wasn't a synagogue, usually God-fearers and Jews would meet out at the river to pray or out by a body of water. And so they go out there, and that's where they find a place of prayer, and the very first convert in Europe is not a Macedonian man. It's a Macedonian woman named Lydia who was a seller of purple goods. She was a wealthy, well-to-do lady. And her and her whole, her whole household come to faith. And that brings us up to speed. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, who they had picked up in Lystra, and Luke, who they picked up in Troas, that team of four, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, are right now in Philippi when we pick up the story today. Now, Philippi, as we saw last week, is a Roman colony. 
It was a famous location in Roman life during those days because it was the location where Mark Anthony and Octavius joined forces to defeat uh, Brutus and Cassius, who were the, the assassins of Julius Caesar. And so that's where they won the decisive battle over Brutus and Cassius in 42 B.C. It was a beautiful city. It was populated in large part by retired Roman soldiers. It had been given a special status. See, Rome had these, these different areas divided up into, into provinces, like we would have states. And then the capital of this province of Macedonia was Thessalonica. But Philippi wasn't under the jurisdiction of Thessalonica. It was its own Roman colony. It had special status. Therefore, it was fiercely loyal to Rome. They were very proud of their Roman um, status. And it was a very, very important city. And you hear Luke mention that. It was, a, it was a city of great importance. Matter of fact, most scholars think that Luke was probably from Philippi. It was a major city located on a major trade route. But it was a city without a significant Jewish presence. And so they had to pray. They had to worship out by the river. And we pick it up in Acts 16, verse 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, this place by the river where Lydia was saved apparently became the place where Paul and and his team would gather regularly with Lydia and her family or in any other believers who might have come to faith. And we don't have any indication that anybody else has been saved up to this point. In the other cities, it would say something like, many believed or many trusted in the Lord or many followed Paul. And, and, but in this case, there hasn't, that hasn't been said. All we know of is Lydia and her household. So it may just be Luke and Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy going and meeting with Lydia and her family every day out by the river or at least every week on the Sabbath, out by the river, praying and teaching and singing. But apparently, on more than one occasion, when they were on their way to the river, there was a slave girl. And we read in, continuing in verse 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So they kept being interrupted by this this girl who was demon-possessed. She had a demon. Now, divination... It's strictly prohibited in Scripture. It's strictly prohibited in Scripture. Um, why? Because it's de- demonic. Tarot cards, uh, astrology, horoscopes, palm reading. It's all of it. All of it's demonic. Now, a lot of the um, divination that goes on in our nation is, 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 is fake in the sense that you've got these people out there that have become very good at cold reading. They can say the right questions to make you think that they're reading your mind. But some of it's not fake. Some of the stuff that goes on out there is real. But all of it, the fake and the real, is demonic. It's all demonic. And so there's this girl who's, who's been possessed by a demon. Now, where's the source of this demonic activity? Well, in this passage when it says she has a spirit of divination, the word for divination literally is python, pythia, um, pythonia. I mean, yeah, pythonia. That's the word. It means snake. She has a spirit of the snake in her. And what does that mean? Why does he use that word? Well, literally, uh, this word python was associated with the Greek god Apollos. Okay, Apollo, um, uh, according to Greek legend, had a snake through whom he often spoke. So the Greek god Apollo would speak through a snake. And the python or the snake was very closely associated with the worship of Apollo. Matter of fact, there was a, a shrine real close to Philippi called uh, Pythian Apollo, the snake of Apollo. 
So this demonic spirit comes out of her religion. It comes out of the religion of the region. It comes out of perhaps the religion of her owners. Now, let me say this as clearly as I can. And it offends. And so I'll just warn you in advance, it offends. And especially offends outside of these walls. And it may offend some of you in here. But it's the truth. All false religions are demonic. Every false religion in the world is the doctrine of demons according to the scripture. If we believe the exclusive claims and the exclusive message of Christ, if we believe the exclusive work of Christ and the accomplishment of Christ on the cross, if we believe in the unique resurrection and triumph of God in Christ over death itself and over Satan and over his armies, then what else is there? There's no other way, and Satan's goal is to direct everyone away from the way. I said it once before, this is the best illustration that I can come up with, with my very limited intelligence, is in a room like this, there are one, two, three, four, five doors. And if a fire were to break out in this room, and I know that one, two, three, four of the doors have been padlocked, they're shut, you cannot get through them, but I know that this door is wide open and that fire breaks out, the most loving thing I can do, not judgmental thing, the most loving thing I can do is to tell you those doors won't work. Go through this door. This is the door. And so every other way, according to Jesus himself, is wrong, is false. The doors don't open. And what does Satan want? He wants you banging at those closed doors. Every false religion is an attempt to get you banging on the false door and to avoid the true way, which is Jesus Christ alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, that he says, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifices they offer to demons, that he's talking about, the, 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 the culture there in Corinth and, and the pagan sacrifices, their religion. He says they offer their sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now let me say this. How do we confront false religion in our culture? We have to use prudence and wisdom Okay, you can, if you so choose, go up in the face of someone who doesn't believe the way you do and tell them that they are believing in demons and that the religion is demonic. You can do that if you want to. Okay? There may be a time and a place for such a tactic. But I dare say that Paul would encourage us to do this. Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When Paul walks into Athens, here in two chapters, he'll walk into Athens, and he will reason with the men of Athens. Meanwhile, he knows that all these other statues of these false gods out there are the doctrine of demons. And so there may be a time and a place to point that out in a much more forceful way, but I think as Christians we must be careful and walk in wisdom toward outsiders, letting our speech be gracious. 
In this case, though, it was time for Paul to get a little bold. Bible says here he got annoyed. I think it's funny. I mean, Luke just gives us Paul. This is just Paul. Okay, he, it doesn't say that Paul began to worry about the welfare of the slave girl. It says that he was annoyed by the slave girl. He was annoyed. Now, I'm, I'm sure he did. He, he had compassion for people and, and, and for their condition. And, but the slave girl keeps bugging him with this, with this divination that she's doing every time they go out. And he just gets annoyed. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. Isn't it interesting, though, what the demon's saying here? What's the demon saying? The demon is not saying, These men are fools. These men are tricking you. What does the demon say? The demon says this. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. It's almost like she's a partner in ministry with them. I mean, she's speaking the truth. She's proclaiming it loudly like they might be proclaiming it. They may be saying the exact same things. We are servants of the Most High God. We're here to share with you the way, the salvation. They may be standing on the street corners there every day saying these things. And here she's saying the same thing. Well, I think it's interesting to hear. This is, the same, this is a pattern we see in Scripture with demons. You see, sometimes demons get the truth better than we do. You see it all throughout the Gospels. Um, I took my, my um, quiet time Bible once, and I, I went to the Gospel of Mark. Because I would be reading the Gospel of Mark, and you, so Jesus, like, calms the, 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 walks on water and then calms the sea. And, and the disciples are all saying, who is this? And, and, and all throughout Mark, you got people go amazed at Jesus' teaching and wondering who he is. And, and then in Mark 8, finally, Peter confesses Christ, Jesus, as the Christ, as the Messiah. So I went back and I was reading through that. And, you know, at least four, maybe five times before Peter finally confesses Jesus as Messiah, that demons had already done it. Demons would come out and they say, you're Jesus, son of the most high. Or they'd come out and say, oh, you're the holy one here to torment us. And so they recognize Christ. Demons' eyes are already open to who Christ is. But when their eyes are open to Christ, they hate him. They hate God. You see, when a person, when humanity's eyes are open to Christ, we turn to God. Demons can't be saved. Satan has no chance of redemption. But people do. And so demons can see Christ for who he is. They speak the truth. Is she speaking the truth? Yes. Demons can speak truth, 100% truth in their words while having 100% hatred toward God as they say what they say. Their motivation can be 100% hatred toward God. I think that's part of the reason demonic activity can be so deceptive. Because I think it sneaks into the church. Because there are, quote-unquote, churches that say the right things. But their motivation behind what they say is not the glory of God. And so that's deception of demons. So I don't know how this demon is saying this. Maybe it's, he's saying it mockingly. I don't know. You know, just mockingly saying these are servants of the Most High God. 
But whatever it is, we know that the demon's motivation is to distract people and to turn people away from the message, to turn people away from God. James 2.19 talks about our belief in God. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this demon here, who knows what its intent is, but we do know this. Its intent isn't for people to follow the way to salvation. Its intent is to turn people away, to mock the disciples, to mock the missionaries. Verse 19, when our owners saw, so Paul, well, hold on one second, Paul cast the demon out in verse 19. When the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Do you want to test someone's tolerance of the gospel? Challenge their pocketbook. That's how you really test someone's tolerance of the gospel. Yeah, you can teach what you want to teach. Just don't mess with my money. And that even happens in the church. You want to test someone's degree of maturity in Christ? Challenge their pocketbook. Challenge their wallet. And see who's sitting on the throne of their heart if it's not a bunch of dead presidents and Benjamin Franklin. Because money, more than anything else in the world, has a way of sitting on the throne of our heart And even as believers, we have a hard time prying that thing loose. And you want to offend someone real quick? Start talking about money. I mean, it's pretty common common knowledge in preacher circles. Don't preach about giving. It'll make people leave. That's what they say, you know. Because what you hear when you go out in the streets, well, you know, I went to church when I was a kid, but all they talk about is my money. Okay, sorry. You know what? Jesus talked about your money, too, more than he talked about anything else in the Scriptures. So, you want to test someone's faith? You want to test someone's maturity in their faith? You want to fend someone real quickly? Begin to challenge their income. You begin to challenge their pocketbook. So when these owners see that, hey, wait a second. They have no regard for the girl. They don't give a rip about the girl. They give a rip about their bottom line. So they drag these guys before the magistrates. And they say this in verse, 30, verse 20. These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. Do you, do you, do you see the, the anti-Semitism there, the hint of anti-Semitism in that passage? First thing they want to point out is these men are Jews. Now, there's not very many Jews in Philippi. Maybe this is the reason. But there was anti-Semitism in the Roman world. It, it came in waves. There was at one point when Claudius, the emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome for whatever reason. And... And so, in this case here, this guy, they bring Paul and Silas, and the first accusation is these men are Jews. And then they say they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Of course, they're not going to talk about the real reason they brought them there. Instead, they bring the charge of religio illicita, which was the law in Rome that if you were going to have a religion in Rome, it had to be an approved religion. There were illicit religions, religions that weren't approved. So what it was that Rome, really, the Senate, wanted you to worship the emperor. That was the, the worship they wanted you to practice. But as they grew and they conquered nations, and these different nations had different religious practices, they began to accommodate a little bit, and they would let these nations practice their religion to a certain degree, but it had to be approved by the Senate. And so Judaism had been approved, but so far this new faction of Judaism... It had not been approved. And so, to a certain degree, 
the charge they bring is true, but their intent behind it is evil. Nothing stirs up a mob more than getting people riled up about race and religion. Those two things will get a mob going. It's still today, just as easy today as it was 2,000 years ago to get a mob riled up is to turn their hearts toward people for who they are, their race, and what they believe in. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and those magistrates tore the clothes off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. As I mentioned earlier, this was a Roman colony, and Roman colonies were um, governed by two magistrates, or they're called praetors. And uh, they had these police that would follow them around, and they would carry these bundles of rods, and in the middle of the bundles of rod was also an axe, and they were all tied together. And that was for, the rods were for corporal punishment, to beat someone on the spot if need be, and the axe was for capital punishment, to chop someone's head off on the spot if need be. And so this was what they carried with them, and that's what the image is here as they come and they see this crowd, this mob, all angry. And they, they strip them of their clothes and they begin to beat them with these rods. And these rods were like, were a real hard wood, like a birch wood. They had no give in them. And so they would just beat them with these rods. And oftentimes, the beating was so severe that people would go into shock or die or just pass out from the pain. And so this isn't just a spanking. This isn't just a, a, a knock on the back. This is a beating, a tremendous beating that Paul and Silas receive. And it says in verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. What is stocks? Well, we have the image of the colonial America when they put the guy in the stocks, put his head through the hole, and, or put his feet in some stocks. And Well, the stocks in the Roman world would have been a long board that had several holes in it. And they would take and put one foot in one hole and latch it down. And they would take the other leg and stretch it as far as they could. Get it in the farthest hole you can away from the other hole and latch it down. Historians say that a lot of times it would cause tendons to pop, muscles to tear. Their muscles would go into spasms as a result of this action. And of course prisons during those days, <laughs> the prisons we have today are, are luxury compared to that. I mean, these, this is first century. The prisoners would sit in their own filth. There wouldn't be any bathroom breaks. Get out of the stocks. Go use the bathroom. They would sit in their own filth. There would be all sorts of vermin rats in there. So here's Paul and Silas. This is the picture. Paul and Silas, their legs being stretched out to the point of unbearable pain, which actually may be good because perhaps that pain is distracting from the pain that's all over the rest of their body. Open wounds all over their body. And rats sniffing around as they sit right there. And this is the situation that they've been put into. This is what's going on with these guys at this moment. Amazingly enough, Paul received this treatment many times. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five tells us he was beaten with rods three times. That's why he bore the marks. Paul would talk about, I think Paul could walk around and say, yeah, this scar here, that's Philippi. You see this one up here? That was Lystra. That was a big rock that dude threw at me. See this one back here? Paul bore the marks of his ministry. Even in ancient Rome, even for ancient Rome, this was a terrible miscarriage of justice. 
Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.2 refers to this experience in Philippi as shameful. Because what these magistrates did, they were spineless. They just gave in to the mob. There was no chance for Paul or Silas to defend themselves. This was totally a miscarriage of justice. We'll see later on in Ephesus, much stronger leadership in that city when another mob arises. Paul had had this tendency for mobs to sort of happen when he went into town. Another mob starts, and they're wanting to do something to Paul. And those leaders step in and say, wait a second here. We are not, we need to follow Roman jurisprudence and see this case out the way it should be seen. So this is where I really want us, that was all introduction, (laughs) by the way. Because I want to get us to this point here where we talk about suffering this morning. Let me bring up our title for today. Persecution that leads to praise and proclamation is what I entitled today's passage. And I want us to look at what, how Paul and Silas react to this terrible pain they're in. And here's the first thing I want us to see. Suffering often becomes the pathway to pure praise. Suffering oftentimes becomes the pathway to pure praise. Now, I'm going to talk about suffering in a pretty general way this morning. Because to us in America, we're not in stocks, in jail cells, with rats wanting to nibble away at the flesh hanging off our back. It's not the situation we're in. But we have other types of suffering. Some of it's just simply psychological suffering from being insulted for our faith. Maybe it's just other types of suffering simply from the circumstances. Like I said with the balloon, just maybe it's a circumstance in your life that has got you feeling really down. And so I want us to use it in a fairly general way today. Paul and Silas here, as I mentioned, are in terrible pain. They've been mistreated. They've been beaten within an inch of their life. But according to verse 25, it says at midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns to God. Now, I don't think any of us in here would blame Paul or Silas for being a little bit angry. Well, just a little bit ticked off. None of us would blame them for that, being angry at, at these, the slave owners, um, the slave girls' owners. Uh, maybe being angry at the mob, the magistrates. Maybe being angry at these police officers who beat them up. Angry at this jailer who just took their legs and yanked them into these stocks. You'd think that they have reason to be angry, or maybe even, maybe even angry toward God. I mean, after all, I don't think this is what they were hoping for when the Macedonian man, when they got the vision, come, help us. So they go, and they go to help, and all they've got so far for their labor is is Lydia and her family. And, And then they try to help this slave girl, and they get thrown in jail. I mean... I could see myself, if I were in Paul's situation, which I'm not, I could see myself saying, goodness, God, this is not working out the way I want it to work out, the way I planned it. This is not the way I envisioned things. And being angry at God. I don't think any of us would blame Paul and Silas in that situation. Or, even if they're not angry, I don't think any of us would blame Paul and Silas for just sitting quietly and just hanging their head. And that's how I react when I've been hurt or disappointed or frustrated or even disappointed myself. I just kind of get bummed and I walk around and Heather will say, what's wrong? I'll say, nothing, nothing, I'm all right. right. 
Come on, wake up, Steve. Get with it. I mean, here's Paul and Silas. Surely we wouldn't blame them for just sitting there. (sighs) But they don't. It says they prayed, and then they began to sing hymns. (laughs) My goodness. They're praying and singing hymns. They're singing to God in the midst of terrible circumstances. There is a joy. There is a joy that a Christian possesses that exists despite the circumstances. There is a joy that resides so deep in the heart of a believer that it cannot be quenched. It just cannot be quenched. And if you haven't experienced that joy, I'm sorry I'm keeping fooling with my microphone today. Uh, If you haven't experienced that joy, I can't explain it to you. If you haven't come to Christ, you can't experience the joy, first of all. But for a true believer, there is a joy that resides in his heart that, that, that totally exists despite the circumstances. It's a joy, first of all, that looks far beyond our circumstances. It looks way beyond our circumstances. It's the joy spoken of in Hebrews 12.2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a joy that has that ability to look beyond the circumstances. It's a joy that has the ability, like I said a couple of weeks ago, to look at our inheritance and say, I'm a child of the king. I'm going to rule angels according to the scriptures. Do you know that? It's an interesting passage. You're going to rule angels. I don't know what that means. I really don't. <laughs> but it's amazing. And there's going to be a new heaven and an earth that's going to belong to me and to you if you're a believer. And we're going to possess it. And, and then we're going to be in the presence of God forever and all eternity. And we're going to grow in our knowledge of him and, 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 and learn from him every day and just bask in his glory. And when you look forward to that, it helps you endure what you're going through right now. So what? So what if this happened or that happened? Joy is coming. I mean, unceasing joy. But you know what? It's not just a joy that looks beyond the current circumstances to the future. It's also a joy that's unceasing in the midst of the circumstances. Philippians 4.4, Philippians 4.4. Isn't it interesting that the the book of the Bible that deals the most with joy, and we did a series on joy. We went through Philippians. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness. I don't think hardly any of you were here when we did that series. You remember it, Francis? We did this series called The Pursuit of Happiness, and we went through Philippians. Isn't it interesting that that the church he writes to about joy is which church? The church in Philippi. So he writes this in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so when the Philippians got that letter, so here's, you know, someone coming in and opening up the scroll and say, hey, the Apostle Paul has sent us a letter, everybody. Gather around. Let's read. And they get to chapter 4, verse 4. They didn't have the chapter numbers and all that, but they get to this part. And they say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And perhaps the church was bigger at that point, And there's someone sitting out in the crowd that goes, yeah, whatever. Are you kidding me? Paul doesn't know what I'm going through right now. 
And someone else in that church could stand up, perhaps the jailer himself, and say, no, you don't understand. You see, Paul, he had been beaten to a pulp. His legs were practically dislocated, and he was rejoicing in the Lord always. So get over it. Get off your high horse. Get over it. You have skin on your back, for goodness sakes. I don't know if that happened or not. That's just my imagination. But I do think it's interesting that Paul wrote about joy to the church where he experienced some of his worst pain. Because you cannot say joy and pain that your joy is dependent upon your level of pain. If it is, then it's not Christ. It's not Christian joy. It's not the right kind of joy. You're talking about humanistic happiness over here if you think it depends on your level of pain or your level of how you feel you've been treated or the level of how you feel things are going. It's a joy that's unceasing in the midst of the circumstances. It's a joy that looks far beyond the circumstances. Listen to this. It's also a joy, and I'll explain this. It sounds weird. It's also a joy that exegetes the circumstances. Hmm. Okay, what does exegete mean? Okay, that sounds like a seminary word. It is. We talk about exegetical preaching or expository preaching and doing exegesis on the text. Well, exegete means you simply interpret the text. Expository preaching is you expose the text. You, you bring out the truth. You explain the text. And exegesis is to interpret. So if you say you're practicing good exegesis, it's good interpretation of the Scripture. So... This type of joy that Paul has is a joy that exegetes the circumstances. What do I mean by that? What I mean is what James 1, 2 says. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God has your pain here for a purpose. And so rejoice in that. If someone has hurt your feelings, rejoice in it. God's allowed it for a reason. Hurt feelings are about the worst we have to deal with. And so he exegetes, he interprets the situation. (laughs) I'm going to sing to God. Because God's got a purpose for my pain. Matter of fact, I know he exegeted the circumstances because when God delivers him and the jail cells break open, he does not run. Instead, he says, wait a second here. God's got a reason. Hang on, hang on, Silas. Let's stay here. And he uses the opportunity to bring the gospel to another family. And so, joy It's a joy that exegetes the circumstances. It's a joy that's unceasing in the midst of the circumstances. It's a joy far beyond, that we look far beyond our circumstances. And how do they tap into this joy? It's here in the text. It says they prayed first. They prayed, and then they sang hymns. If you're having a hard time sitting in this room right now and having a smile on your face, then you need to get on your face before the Lord. Because it's not God's fault, it's yours. He doesn't change. He's been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, they praise him no matter what. You see, we praise God when we feel great and we raise our hands, la, 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 yes. But then our circumstances and we just don't feel like praising, we got our hands down and our frowns on. You know what? God hasn't changed. You've changed. 
God's the same. He was worthy of your praise when things were going exactly the way you wanted them in your little mind. And He's worthy of your praise now when they're not going the way you think you want them to go in your little mind. He is worthy of your praise every moment of every day, and I don't care what you're going through. He was worthy of Paul and Silas' praise when they were practically dead. So because your feelings have been hurt, don't stop praising the Lord. It's that simple. They praised the Lord. It didn't come from them. They prayed, and they began to sing. I mean, how can you... Okay, let's get some hymns here. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. My own, when you begin to sing those words, everything else just sort of fades away. I mean, my goodness, that's glory. That's glory. And so Paul and Silas, man, they're just praising. They're rocking the jailhouse, okay? I don't know if they got a drum set in there, Francis. I really doubt it. But, you know, maybe they're just clanking the stocks as they sing the hymns. Yeah, all right. They're just praising the Lord. And look at what it says. I'm totally off my notes now. It says in verse 25, what? At the end of verse 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. Do you realize the way you handle your suffering, your frustrations, your anger, your disappointments, the way you handle them will be a witness to the world? The prisoners were watching them. I'm convinced. Did you realize it says here in the text that the gates were broken open and the, the, the chains came off of all of them, not just Paul and Silas. Yet when the jailer comes and he's about to kill himself because he knows the penalty for a jailer losing his prisoners was death, and he's thinking, I might as well go ahead and carry it out on myself. Which Think about that. He has a family. This guy has nothing to live for. His whole life is bound up in fear. But anyway, it's a whole other sermon. He's about to kill himself. And what does Paul say? We're all here. Why do those other hardened criminals stay? Paul and Silas aren't hardened criminals, but the rest of them in there are. Why do they hang out? They saw something. Whoa. And Paul now has a, a, a voice of authority over the rest of that prison because of the way he has handled his circumstances. So he can go and say, guys, we're staying right here. And they're all there. They're all there. I don't know. Maybe a lot of them were saved. I mean, I like to read into the text sometimes. I'm wondering, come on, Paul, did you give an invitation after this? Come on. Maybe some of them were. We don't, we don't have any, any indication of that. But we do know at least one man and his family were saved. You see, the other thing I want us to see is that suffering, whoa, Go back for me one slide if you can. Suffering often becomes the pathway to powerful proclamation. Suffering often becomes the pathway to powerful proclamation. The prisoners were listening to them. Then we have the earthquake come. Paul cries out in a loud voice as this guy's about to kill himself that don't harm you, we're all here. 
Jailer calls for the lights. He rushes in. And what does he say? He asks the most important question that anyone can ask in the world. It's the most important question in the universe, frankly. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He's trembling. Why is he trembling? Well, number one, because Paul and Silas didn't escape. (laughs) Here's these guys that have been beaten. They're praising the Lord, and they stay. They stay. And secondly, he would have certainly interpreted this as divine. This earthquake that broke the jail open as divine. And so this guy's wondering, oh my goodness. He's been brought into a fear of the Lord as he comes and he falls on his knees and asks them, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps he had heard the slave girl saying, these men proclaim to you the way of salvation. That kind of works as bookends in the text. The slave proclaiming that these men know the way of salvation, uh, the way to be saved. And then the jailer asking, how can I be saved? And so Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. His household and himself will be saved if they believe. And the belief is not a work. Don't misinterpret that. Belief is not a work. Belief is the opposite of work. It's resting. It's putting all your hope in Christ alone. So they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. I'm sure he had to explain that a little bit more. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And the jailer's going, great. Who's Jesus? So they spoke the word of the Lord to him, according to the scripture here. And, verse 33, they took him at that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And they brought him into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, wrote this. I love this. This is beautiful. He's talking about the jailer. It says, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes as he himself was washed from his That's the beautiful picture here. Here's the jailer washing these men, healing their wounds. Yet in a much greater way, he's been washed now. And he's been healed of his wounds. Last week was the um, National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We didn't observe it this year. It's the first year we didn't. And I don't know necessarily why. I think it really just sort of slipped my mind this year. But it's the National... The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And that was last week. And so I'm just bringing our attention to it this week because this text lends itself well to talking about suffering and persecution. Let me, get, let me share with you a couple of stories and then we'll be done. So much for starting on time and getting out of here on time. Um, in Iraq, three Sundays ago, on the same day that we sat here and enjoyed our fellowship meal, several gunmen armed with automatic weapons and explosive, entered a church during a worship service and opened fire on the worshipers, killing 50. In another Islamic nation, and this one actually wasn't, um, this information as to what nation it was wasn't released because this person still lives there and they could be in danger. Muslim extremists learned of a guy by the name of Suleiman Nasri Khan. They learned about his conversion to Christianity and they attacked him. 
and they killed his three-month-old son. He and his wife escaped, and on October 25th of this month, or this last month, this year, Islamic scholar Alama Nawazish Ali issued a fatwa, which is a religious ruling which all Muslims are supposed to obey. And that fatwa was to kill this man. On November 1st, following the death threats to him and his family, he sustained injuries when extremists attacked him in Islamabad, pelted him with stones and bricks, and kicked him in the chest and stomach, and tried to force him to recite Islam's creed and convert him back to Islam. He refused. He was found unconscious in a pool of his own blood on the roadside by another pastor. Fear of this fatwa has prevented him from going to the police or to the hospital, and he's currently in hiding with his family. I found a picture yesterday that was so disturbing that I wouldn't even show it to you guys. These are the, these are the, these are the stories I can share. Of a child in Ethiopia that had his limbs chopped off. The child, two years old. His limbs were chopped off because his parents converted to Christianity. So the extremists in the village, to punish his parents, chopped his limbs off. And we want to fuss? We want to fuss about church not doing something the way I want it done? Give me a break. When the extremists are sawing your son's limbs off, you don't care about whether you're homeschool or public school. You don't care about how you felt when someone didn't look at you the right way on a Sunday morning. You don't care. The only thing that's left, because everything else is being stripped away, the only thing that's left is the joy of Jesus Christ that's going to sustain you as your child screams in agony. I am tired, tired, exhausted by the American church that wants to complain because we just can't consume Christianity in the package we most like. And this consumerism is demonic and it's infected every church in America, including Harbin's. Your flesh is on your body. Your legs are not disjointed. And we can't even sing praises in here to God like it really matters. Come on. Come on, America. Come on, Harbins. Wake up. This is not, never has been, and never will be about you. It is only about Christ. That's why there is a cross on the top of this building and not a man. It's only about Christ. It will only ever be about Christ. Is there things the American church can do better? Yes. Is there things Harvest can do better? Yes. Hang in there. Let God's joy just let you ride those waves of the ups and downs. Let his joy just take you and let you ride these waves. And let it spill out of your heart in such a way that others are looking at you. Others in this church, outside of these walls, are looking at you and they say, boy, I really like the way so-and-so handled that situation. There's something about him. Oh, my goodness. There's something about him that I got to have. 
That's Paul and Silas. That's suffering. That's persecution that leads to praise and to proclamation. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as Mark leads us in one closing song. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I know I've stepped on some toes this morning, maybe with my discussion of other religions or just my discussion of all of us needing to get over our personal prejudices. Get used to it. I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. Heavenly Father, may you be praised above every single person in this room. God, Lord Jesus, you have given my family such a comfortable life. (laughs) Oh God, forgive me for the times when finances have been tough and I've allowed it to affect my attitude towards others and towards you. Forgive me for the times when I've had my feelings hurt and allowed it to affect my attitude towards you and towards others. Lord, forgive me for the times when I've hurt other people's feelings and led them astray in the same way. God, we live in such a comfortable life. I'm afraid that, Lord, our church, I think the American church needs a dose of persecution. And Lord, I don't think we are to pray for persecution. I think we're to pray against it. But God, I believe in your sovereignty. And it may not be far away because it has a purifying effect on our motives and on our attitudes. Purify our hearts, Lord. Let it not have to be pain that purifies us. God, we pray that you would just move in our hearts and expose the areas that we're just totally out of line with you. And convict us of our sin. Turn us to you. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that's a family Lord, as I think about this church in Philippi, and I think about this hodgepodge of people, there's, there's, there's a doctor named Luke who stays behind. There's an old Roman soldier that was a jailer. There's a slave girl, and there's a rich Gentile woman. Heavenly Father, as I think about that weird combination of people, I think about how you bring people into your family the way you want to, when you want to, how you want to, and you teach us that we are a family and that we are to love one another despite our differences. And so the smelly old jailer, I'm convinced, Lord, the next Sabbath was standing beside the rich Lydia, and they were both singing hymns to you. And I praise you for it. And I look for diversity in our church, and I praise you for it. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help strengthen the familial bonds of this family and that we'd realize the spirit bond of family is infinitely stronger than blood bonds. Yet we treat it like it's nothing. We treat it like it's no big deal. So God, help us to be a stronger family. Help us, Lord, to be willing to endure whatever it is that you want us to endure and to do it with joy, knowing that we belong to you. And we're not to fear the one who can kill the body. We're to fear the one who can kill our soul and cast it into hell forever. So God, right now as we sing songs to you, let them be a genuine response from our heart. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we sing.
One song. Amen. Let's just respond to the Lord. Let's not rush into this, and let's not uh, take these words lightly. Um, let's tell the Lord we'll offer up our lives um, for what He has done. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's uh, it's glorious. It's weighty. It's huge. So let's sing this from our hearts to the Lord. Father, help us to um, be ready to give an answer, 
to anyone who comes and asks us about the hope that we have when we go through suffering, when we go through difficult times. And help us to do that with gentleness and with respect. As the Scripture says, help our speech to be seasoned with salt, as the Scripture says. But help us to be bold in opening our mouth about the Jesus that sustains, the Jesus that provides, the Jesus that is so wonderful and beautiful and glorious that the things of this world grow strangely dim as we focus on the beauty and the light and the glory and the wonder of Christ. I fall short in that. I'm sure many of my friends here struggle with that too. So I pray that you would help us all as a church journey together, growing step by step, bit by bit, being conformed to the image of Christ, the Christ who trusted wholeheartedly in his Father. Help us to have that same trust, love, devotion, and passion. In Jesus' name, amen. I have nothing to say after that. God bless you. Go in peace. You're dismissed to various Bible studies.